0: Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director... Bobby Black. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, uh, Bobby Black, uh, Executive Director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project. Um, I'm joined today by a legendary uh, cannabis patient, activist, journalist, uh, cultivator, um, you name it. Uh, Todd McCormick. Todd was an editor on Jack Harris' classic uh, book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Uh, he's the author of How to Grow Medical Marijuana and the owner of Authentic Genetics and a feature contributed to Grow Magazine. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining
1: us today. Bobby, thanks for having me on today. And thank so, you for the warm introduction
0: you you're very welcome and well deserved um it blows my mind honestly dude to think that we've known each other for almost three decades now um it, we uh, 28
1: years right bro 20 28 years i think
0: yeah 1994 uh i believe i mean the cannabis cup in 94 sure. had to be when we first met because sure. i had just started at high times uh in september of 94 and I'd only been working there a few months when they were like, hey, how would you like to come to Amsterdam and work this cannabis event for us? And of course, as a 21-year-old, you know, college kid, I was like, Of course, fuck yeah, you know. So uh I went out there and that was my first experience. First time I'd ever been on a plane, first time I'd been out of the country. Wow. And uh, and it was there that I mean, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know who any of these famous activist people were yet i didn't have a chance to i knew i knew who jack was because i had read the emperor wears no clothes right
1: uh, and he was featured in high times constantly at that point
0: yeah and i had been exposed to it but other than that i didn't really know who anybody was so we well, we met although i you know we didn't meet meet like but <laughs> we did meet but we didn't really connect get to hang out
1: well you were really busy i was kind of working as jack's assistant and helping him with everything at that time and you know we we were both there kind of on duty in a way you you were clearly on duty i was kind of on duty
0: <laughs> yeah and you know because i was a because i was this uh kid you know who didn't really know anyone or anything they and i was there to work i was working judge registration which which was a nightmare i mean this was the first cannabis cup that was ever really open to the public and there were swarms i don't know if you remember but outside the pax party house there was lines down the block and it was yeah. raining and cold and i'm yep. dealing with hordes of people coming in to get their register and get their badges and this is before computers yeah, so it's crazy paper lists that i'm trying to find people's names on and cross them off and it was a crazy thing so i didn't get to do a lot of the cool stuff like you did and a lot of other people right. did uh like the the cannabis castle tournament which we will yeah, we'll the about first later. one was great yeah, yeah. which we will talk about at length later but um, anyway, it was just a, its a trip uh, to, to have known you this long and, and been in the com- in the community with you this long. Um, it's been and an addition- honor,
1: buddy. It's been yeah, an honor, at, Bobby. It's been yeah, a fun journey. It,
0: it mutual, a mutual honor. And uh, in addition to all the things I previously uh, mentioned, uh, like me, you are also something of a canthropologist uh, yeah. that is a cannabis historian and collector. Um, but before we get into all that, uh, I want to talk a little about you and your history. So. Uh, tell us your story. Tell us about you know where you're from. I mean, I know a lot of this stuff, but of course our sure. listeners don't know this. Uh, where you're from, how you got into cannabis, and how you eventually became such close friends with so many of the icons in the community and ended up an icon in your own right. Well,
1: um, in the 1970s, 1972, I, I contracted my first tumor and it was in my spine. My, my, my uh, one through five is my my spine, uh, vertebrae one through five are fused together solid since I was two years old. And then I had tumors spread to my skull, three locations, my ear, two locations, my hip, two locations between my left lung and my heart, uh, where it was in soft tissue for the first time, and then eventually onto my left arm. But in eight years, I got nine tumors. And around the ninth time, my mother was at her wit's end. And she read in good housekeeping of all places in a in a doctor's column in an issue that was devoted to cancer that people were using marijuana for the treatment of cancer chemotherapy and radiation side effects and she approached um, my pediatrician and you know their attitude after watching me go through hell for the last eight years was it's not his worst option and my mother started Kind of secretly giving me cannabis she handed me a joint on the way home from a chemo and radiational therapy session one day and told me to sip it like it was a straw and by the time we got home it was like 20 minute drive i had gotten a little stoned i was giddy i wanted sauteed spinach and i wasn't nauseous and she was stoned and thought what did i do And she called my doctor and and he said, wow, that's pretty incredible that I was hungry and not puking, of course. So he said, you know, tomorrow, drive home, don't give him any, call me, see how he is. So she drove me home. I was back to puking, back to feeling horrible. So she came upstairs with another joint and we sat there. Uh, listening to Don McLean, American Pie, to her chagrin, uh, because I loved it at the time. And we sat there getting stoned uh, and immediately my nausea subsided and I, I got an appetite and I started feeling a lot better because, you know, when you're dying of cancer, you tend to get a little depressed naturally. And getting high picked up my spirits and really changed the whole situation for the better. And at that point on, we started using cannabis around my treatments. Um, And it turned me into a bit of uh, somebody who was really interested in the history and the, the whole thing about it. My mother had a book called A Child's Garden of Grass. And it was a comedy book. And it had this really interesting chapter, it said the dangerous effects of grass. And when you turn to it, there was a little poem and the little poem just read a child should always say what's true and speak when he is spoken to and behave mannerly at table, at least as far as he is able. And then when you turn the page, one page is blank and the other page just says the dangerous effects of grass are, and then it has one, it says getting busted. And then you turn the page and that's it. The whole chapter's over. (laughs) And uh, that was my first like, wow. And, when I got a little older, I was 12. My parents were bikers and hippies, they gave me another motorcycle. And I started riding trails and smoking grass, uh, because my neck was hurting all the time from the fusion. And my doctor was very hesitant to prescribe me anything that was uh, he said mentally or physically addictive. And he felt that because my fusion was never going to get better, that I would have to just learn how to live with it. And when I was Kind of like wow by that he made a joke like you know you could just smoke your mom's pot and i remember being like what and he was like it's not your worst option and i was just like kind of blown away with that i mean he told this to a 12 year old a 12 year old yeah Yeah. and i was just like but at that point they treated me like a little adult because i'd been through a lot and i got it and i i started going and looking um up books because i was really into learning more and more about it the child's garden of grass book hit me so i started going to the library and i picked up ernest abel's book marijuana the first Twelve Thousand years and in his forward he writes uh, about a cannabis seed and he says it sprouts from the earth not meekly not cautiously in suspense of where it is and what it may find but defiant arrogant that whatever the circumstance it has the ability to survive and i remember reading that over and over thinking man i want to be that little seed you know that is so (laughs) cool and um and that book went into the history of when cannabis was first invented or not invented excuse me when the first paper was invented using hemp and mulberry in china uh they kept it a secret from their neighbors for 900 years according to this book And I found the whole thing enthralling. It talked about hemp history and coming to America. And it was really my first, like, wow, that that there's way more to this. And as I got older, I ended up um, getting over the tumors and not getting cancer anymore. And I, when I was 13, I guess this is significant too. I was selling a bag of pot to a friend of mine uh, was my friend's older brother. And he had just purchased a Mel Frank Grow book, Mel and Ed, and had he was a carpenter and he made like a little grow uh, box where there'd normally be a TV in your living room and he painted it white and he had pulleys and ropes and fluorescent lamps and he had a little bench and he had the, the pots in it and everything was exactly what he saw in the book. And I saw this and when I, when he opened the doors and I saw the cannabis growing, it was literally like the Wizard of Oz scene where the movie goes from <laughs> black and white to color and my life was never the same again. Wow. And I uh, I immediately traded, sorry I have Dobermans, I immediately <laughs> traded uh, the $20 bag of pot for the grow book um, and went home, cleaned out my closet. I had seeds, I my grandmother had fluorescent lights, she had pots, she had soil, she had a watering can, she had pulleys and ropes. The only thing I had to go buy was fertilizer. And when I did, I was 13. I went to CVS and I got this shit called Peters 2020. And I felt like I was buying porn or something. Because when I walked out to the counter and I put it on the counter, I was like, getting this for my grandmother. The guy was just like, whatever, kid, three bucks. You know? And uh, but it was pretty funny. And I went home and I started growing cannabis. Uh, it was 1984. I was 13. And wow, my life was never the same again. Um, it, then what ended up happening is um, I just hated winter, so I got the inkling to, to, to move and move west. I ended up settling in Pacific Beach, uh, California, in San Diego, and I was picking up books and reading, and I came across Jack Kerouac's book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, in the white version with the green uh, ink on that cover. And I read the book and I was just blown away. I was just completely blown away. I couldn't believe the way he brought it to the point of center for all of this history that we weren't taught you know what was the origin of paper and fibers and covered wagons and the word canvas and the use of it medically and as somebody who always felt the stigma being stigmatized by being a cannabis user i i don't know i felt like less than worthy or something and that book really changed the way i looked at my whole world so i um called the number on the back and it turns out they were doing the 1994 hemp initiative and I drove up there, they were looking for volunteers. They were trying to raise half a million signatures, changed the law. And when I went up there, I brought a collection of pot because I'd been growing pot for a while and, and <clears throat> collecting it. And uh, when I went up there and met Jack, he, he I had a little duffel bag full of weed. And I know now that he just wanted to smoke all the weed <laughs> I had, yeah. but uh, he warmly welcomed me into his office. And then we talked for many hours and then he, Then he invited me over to his apartment and we sat up all night talking about the epistemology of words and letters and it was just amazing and we we became best friends that night, we were really inseparable for years to come after that and um, he introduced me to activism and I had never seen anybody so proactive as Jack printing initiatives, printing the books, spending his nights at Kinko's, photocopying the documents, handing them out at Venice Beach, handing them out at colleges it was really grassroots and I loved it and I and I jumped on, you know, completely into it. And because of that, I got a backstage pass to the cannabis industry because everywhere I went, I went with Jack. So when I went to that cannabis cup, Hager and you guys were already out in Amsterdam and I was able to stay at Steve Hager's place um, at his apartment when he wasn't even there. With his girlfriend Stacy, I was with my girlfriend, and then we all 150 of us got on a plane and went over like with, uh, which was a ridiculous group of people to be on a plane with, you know.
0: You're talking about when we flew out of New York to Amsterdam for that. Were
1: were you with us with 150? That was. Oh, so you weren't already there? Hager was already. No, we took over that
0: whole plane. It was crazy. It was like the circus had come to the airport. It was insane. You had Rainbow Family people and. It was it was fantasy.
1: Ja, yeah, everyone oh was God. there. I my girlfriend had been, this like... big purse and she was going through it on the plane. And suddenly she makes this sound of like. And I was like, what? She goes, remember that ounce of weed you lost? I said, yeah, she said, uh, I found it. It was it was <laughs> it was in between my purse and like the, the thing. And I was like, and we're on the plane over the Atlantic headed yeah. to Amsterdam for the first time and I was like, really so i took it from her and that that's you know brought yeah. so everybody I, it was, smelled
0: oh. like weed on that plane oh, and dude. like so the thing is this is pre nine eleven though so like they didn't yeah. really search in the same way they do now no no no, no no x-ray body cam no. there was no pat downs there was no they gave your bag like a quick little look through or whatever at most and that was it you know sent you on yeah, yeah, I used to I used to crotch my weed and hash when I would fly home from <laughs> Amsterdam because I figured they're not going to grab my 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 junk area. So that's uh, you know.
1: Bobby's kidding. That's hypothetical. He'd never internationally smuggle anything.
0: Ah, come uh, on.
1: No, I'm is, joking. Like,
0: this is ancient history.
1: <laughs> it um, is. Quarter century ago, but I've talked uh, about it before, whatever. But um, all
0: right. That's so, how I uh, got to Amsterdam with Jack. And then I and then I read that you were actually the. Uh, received the first international prescription for medical marijuana in the Netherlands. Is that true?
1: While I was there, um, a doctor, Dr. Churcel in Rotterdam, a great guy, great doctor. uh, He was actually one of the first people in the Netherlands to ever write a prescription for medical cannabis. And uh, I was told this by James Burton, who was doing medical stitching in Rotterdam as well. And James was an American that moved to the Netherlands and was helping develop medical cannabis. Um, And... I went down to Rotterdam and I met Dr. Trussell. I showed him the scar on the back of my neck. I gave him a copy of The Emperor. We had a really good conversation about the history and about you know, the, the sincerity in, in what we were trying to get across. And he thought I was a perfect person to write a prescription for. So he wrote me a prescription for 10 grams a day for my uh, chronic pain. And he's basically sent me on my way, but he told me that it made me internationally legal. And I thought, no, but thanks. <laughs> And uh, so I came home. And on the way from San Diego to LA, there's a checkpoint on federal property. Uh, It's, it's, and what happens is they they're supposedly checking for immigration, but really, they do whatever they want. And they pulled me over. And I had grass on me. And they harassed me for it. And they were going to take the grass and let me go. And I was like, No, if you want to take my medical cannabis, you're gonna have to arrest me, or let me keep it. It's one or the other, I have a prescription, you're ignoring the law, I'm not going to acknowledge your law unless you acknowledge the international law that supersedes it. So either arrest me or or give it back. And they didn't know what to do with me. They ended up giving most of it back kept a little of it. The guy has this human moment with me and says, Come on, man, can you just like, give me a break here? I don't know what to do. And, And so He left me my good buddy took a little bit of of cheaper mexican weed that i had and let me head on my way and i went up and told jack you know that hey this it was it was december of 1994 right when i got back and I was like, this is what we all need to do. So uh, at the time, I was hanging around with LV Musica, who was getting marijuana from the federal government, and also uh, Richard Davis, who ran the Traveling United States Hemp Museum. So the three of us actually went up to Sacramento and we started researching the legality of an international prescription. For instance, if an American goes to Europe and is prescribed a Schedule One substance, they can bring back up to a 90-day supply and because you're not expected to like get off the medicine and this that and the other thing and they also don't think that uh one person's medical utility creates a narcotic nuisance it's like LV. you know they give it to LV. they don't think it's going to make everybody else stone so uh i was kind of convinced that this was actually illegal and dr Trussell was right which he was and then LV got invited to debate the DEA at University of Miami by Florida Normal. So LV invited me to participate and come out and talk to him about my international prescription and see how he responded. And he he was the Southeast quadrant leader of the DEA. His name was Wayne Rokes. Um, nice guy, but uh, he certainly didn't. Uh, he was nice to me, I should say. Um, he certainly didn't um, expect the argument I was making to come up and it kind of blew his mind and he didn't know what to say and i asked him if he was going to let me use my medical cannabis just like he lets lv um and he was just cornered he didn't know what to say and and i said well if i go pick up my medicine will you stop me when i fly back and he said well i won't and i said well well, well, your guys—you're the DEA, you're Southeast yes. Quadrant leader of the DEA. I think you have a little bit of decision here. <laughs> and he was just like, "No, that's not what we're what we're doing." And I said, "Okay, you're all my witness. I'm gonna fly out tomorrow. I'll pick up my medicine, and we'll see if he's bluffing." And if looks could have killed, I think Wayne would have just, you know, vaporized <laughs> me on the spot. But uh, I went back to LV's. I called Martin Air, which was owned by KLM, which was Dutch, and they not only—I f- flew out the next day. Ironically, they had a smoking flight because back then all flights over nine and a half hours were smoking. So (laughs) I they said smoking or non-smoking. And I was like, Well, I have a Dutch physician's prescription for 10 grams of cannabis that I'm supposed to use each day, which is about every two hours. So if you don't mind me smoking cannabis, you could put me in the smoking section. And the lady put me on hold, and then she came back and she said, Would you be willing to provide a copy of your prescription to the stewardess? I said, No. She said, Then it's no problem. Where would you like to sit? And I was kind of blown away, but it's Dutch owned, you know? So I um, yeah. got on the plane and as soon as it took off and the smoking light went off, I sat there, I have video of this, home video of this. And uh, I sat wow. there rolling joints. Yeah, the guy next to me offered me a camel. I said, no, I offered him some weed. He said, no, we both had a great <laughs> flight. And uh, and I got there and I saw Dr. Trussell, and I explained to him what happened. And he was just like, wow. And he was like, you're gonna fly back with it? And I said, yes. So I picked some up. And um, I picked cannabis up from the only medical, the only place it was actually like passing out medical cannabis in 1995 was in Rotterdam as well. And I picked some up and I flew home. And when I flew home, um, they, they basically let me back in. They sent me to secondary, but they let me back in the country. They didn't, go through my stuff that much. The guy wished me the best of luck. I declared it. This is the weird part. So when you get up to customs <laughs> yeah. and they say, do you have anything you know, unlawful to declare? I said, no, I don't have anything unlawful, but I do have my, my prescription from my Dutch physician. And they were just like, what is that? And I said, it's cannabis. And I remember the guy looking at the paperwork and he read cannabis. And then he was like, is that marijuana? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, you got to go to secondary. And I was like, fine. <laughs> so I did. And the guy and I start talking and I showed him my prescription. And I had all of these photocopies of like the Single Treaty Geneva Convention and the Psychotropic Substances Convention and the customs laws that all allowed medical use to come in uh, because it refers to the Opium Act. So I showed him, hey, it's just another Schedule One drug. And they didn't know what to do with me. And the guy just like I was talking to him so much. You just stopped me and said, you know what? I wish you the best of luck with all this. And he carried my bags, walked me through the doors. It's like, goodbye. And uh, (laughs) that's when I realized this was pretty powerful. And that was March of, March of 95. And then when he came back, one of my best friends was Dr. Todd Micaria. And uh, I contacted Dr. Todd and I told him what had happened. And really that's what started us to start getting, because prior to this, Dennis Perone uh, was only requiring a letter of condition, meaning if, if you had glaucoma, just get a letter from your doctor saying you got glaucoma and we'll sell you pot. Um, but it was after this, because I was friends with Brownie, Mary, and Dennis, and John Etwistle, and all the people that went on to, in Anna Boyce, the people that really created 215. Um, and they recognized that having this doctor's uh, prescription would be a big deal. But in California, we couldn't get a doctor to prescribe it. So Dr. Todd Macaria started recommending it. So that's how we started with doctor's recommendations. Literally, I think Dr. Todd Macaria wrote me one of the, if not the very first letter he ever wrote because it was to back up my Dutch physician's prescription. And then when I got... Then then later that month, I started what is called the San Diego Cannabis Compassion Club, where I was redistributing medicine to people for free that other people were donating to me and that I was growing because a lot of people that are sick and at their wit's end don't have money to buy cannabis. And when you're encountering these people that are sick, it's really impossible to not want to, to just give away your stash to them because you just feel so much empathy and compassion for them. So we started that club in March. And then in July, I had the idea of starting another one in San, like I did in San Diego and Rhode Island. And on the way there, I got busted in Ohio with like 33 pounds of weed and some hash. And that didn't go over really well, but the judge, incredibly enough, was pretty cool. And when they were arraigning me, I kind of, I didn't flip out a little, but I was rather excited. Uh, because the prosecutor was saying that I ran a drug house and I was growing pot and all this bullshit. And it wasn't true. And San Diego knew what I was doing. The city council approved uh, medical cannabis. And like, so I was rather excited and the judge let me talk. So I told the judge my history, what I was doing. And the judge asked me if I could get an American physician to back up my Dutch physician's prescription. And I said, yes, sir. So I went back to jail and Dr. Todd McGurria, Dr. Lester Grinspoon and Dr. John Morgan, all friends of mine, wrote me letters of recommendation that went directly to my Ohio judge saying that not only do I recommend with this, do I agree with this prescription? Dr. Morgan called the uh, FDA and ran the question by them saying, schedule one drug, Americans rights. And they said, oh, yeah, 90 day supply, no big deal. And they said, what's the drug? What's the country? And he said, cannabis in the Netherlands. And John later told me that the person at the FDA made the joke and says, I guess he found the hole in the dike. And uh, <laughs> and, and John thought it was hilarious, but he actually wrote to the judge and put in his letter that I confirmed with the FDA that this is in fact legal. And the judge must might might have realized at that point that this was not your average case. And he lowered my bond from 150 grand to two grand. Um, and one of my friends posted like 200 bucks or something like that, and they wanted me to leave the state immediately, so uh, I did, and then, when I came back for. The case to get dismissed, I asked the judge if I could you're going to love this travel back to Amsterdam for the 95 cannabis cup because uh, my. My the story was in the New York Times and Ray Hager had read this the USA today used me as an edit as mm-hmm. an example of their editorial as well and hager was just like wow so so 60 minutes had approached high times wanting to do a story about the cannabis cup so thought i I was the perfect person to show morley schaefer around so high times flew me and my girlfriend back to the 95 cannabis cup um so that i could accompany 60 minutes around town and bring them to my doctor and stuff which i did it was really interesting watching morley schaefer chain smoke cigarettes and look at (laughs) people who smoked cannabis Negatively, but it was interesting, <laughs> and um, I was thinking, wow, buddy, but uh, it was a good event. He seemed and very then...
0: grumpy, he seemed like a
1: grumpy dude. <laughs> he I was nice. him walking around
0: with his, with his grumpy puss on.
1: He was grumpy, you know. It's weird is when you get him when when he was alone with when when I, I mean alone, we were never alone, we had caramel and people with us all the time, but when we weren't shooting and we were talking, he was actually. I found him to be a friendly older guy. I mean, he was, I don't know, once he realized I wasn't a a brain numbed pothead, that was stupid. We got along really well. And when he met my doctor, he was amazed. He asked him very good questions. It was actually really cool. 60 minutes was so nice about it that they did not include the medical story about what I was trying to do with the high time story, because the producers told me that they didn't want to kind of, uh, lessen the 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 point that i was trying to make with medical cannabis because people you know don't take it wrong but maybe look down upon the recreational use of high times and the 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 hippies and all this shit with you know cultural you know just yeah negativity and they thought this is really important what you're trying to do we've had families and friends was affected by cannabis and this is different so it was really kind of a trip and um I, while I was there, got an offer to stay and to be editor-in-chief of a magazine called Hemp Life and ended up spending over a year uh, living and growing in uh, Amsterdam with old Ed Holloway, who's credited with teaching those those younger kids that started the coffee shops how to grow seedless cannabis. And it was really a dream. I got to work at Positronics. Um, I worked for Serious Seeds. Helping clean Yeah, we talked about. Uh, I
0: spoke to uh, Bernard for one of our episodes uh, and talked nice. to him at length and talked about old dad and and positronics and all of that. So
1: yeah, it was quite the place. It was like you you know we had a sign up. You said Utopia, but it was really our Utopia for sure and beautiful experience. But the winters there were horrible, and I wanted <laughs> yeah. to come back home. And then I. I bumped into a liaison of a famous author named Peter McWilliams, who was a five-time New York Times bestselling author on five different subjects, who had over 36 books in print and had recently contracted cancer and AIDS and was looking to do a book on medical cannabis. And I had just printed that magazine or published that magazine with my publisher and put it out. And they picked it up off the magazine stands at Schiphol um or you know the central station and when they met me they realized i was the editor so they sent that off to peter that basically gave me a a meeting and i flew out to los angeles and i got the dream meeting i mean the guy liked me offered me a quarter million dollars eight percent of my book project offered me a video project and offered to put me on the road teaching people how to grow medicine um it was it was a dream come true. I mean, a month later I was moving into a Bel Air mansion and you know had an wow. unlimited credit card and you know six figures in the bank account, which for a poor kid who grew up in Rhode Island was a lot of money. Wow. You know? So it was a huge life shift for me. And the law had just passed. And also, yeah, I was going to
0: say, what year was this that you were living in Amsterdam? Was like ninety six or ninety?
1: Well, yeah, all of ninety six. And then when when two fifteen passed, John Atwistle and Dennis Perrone came out, and they spent most of their time at Positronics because the Posy was just so hospitable. And you know, Dennis and I have a, were always good friends. And Dennis was just telling me, "Come on, Todd, you got to come back and help us implement the law." And I wanted to, and I did. And um, I didn't expect. I expected that if they busted me for growing pot, that that I would get my day in court, that I would be able to present my medical necessity defense and be able to have a fair trial. I didn't, I, I wasn't I wasn't ready for what actually happened, of course, but um, isn't that life, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. When we had Eddie Lepp on the show, we were talking about how uh, the late great Eddie Lepp, God rest his uh, soul. Um, he talked about how he was one of one of the first people to be busted uh for growing medical marijuana after the passage of 215 but you were actually the very first not. Right? You, you were the very Yeah first.
1: Eddie got busted later um I don't have his favorable view of Eddie uh before he got before he, when he got busted they let him out on bond uh he got busted with over 25,000 plants and they didn't even ensure his bond he got out in less than 24 hours and he was on his way to Seattle Hemp Fest with video cameras in tow and a green limousine. And I thought that was really suspicious because when I got busted with 4,000 plants, it took Woody Harrelson and Larry Flint's attorneys two weeks to bail me out on half a million wow. dollars because they had to assure my bond. They had a, they had a hearing to determine that the money came from a legal source. And I remember the judge reading Woody Harrelson's name out loud and spelling it Woodrow Harrelson. He's like, why is that familiar? Is this Woody Harrelson from Cheers? And the prosecution <laughs> said, yeah. And he said, why are we having this? Why are we having this hearing? You know, if you don't know where he got his money, this is just silly. And then he looks at my attorney and he says, Sir, are, are you? are you the gentleman that Ed Norton portrays in The People versus Larry Flint*? And Alan Isaacman says, yes, yes, that's me. I've been Larry Flint's attorney since the 70s. And he's like, why are we, he just turned to the prosecutor again and says, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this right now? And it was really, he was bitter, but but that was my experience getting out. And then Ed Eddie was out for about August, September, October, November, December, January, And then he shows up at my friend's head shop on Melrose with a couple DE DEA agents asking me every stupid question under the sun. And I threw him out of there. I showed up
0: with DEA agents.
1: Yeah. Undercover cops. Yeah. And uh, asking me every stupid question you can. And then they ended up pulling him back in because he got busted while on bond with another 4,000 plants. And um, they used the excuse that they that they never assured his bond that they let him out on half a million dollars without checking that the property that he supposedly put up was worth half a million dollars, which is not my experience at all. And um, my bluntness, when I did the THC Expo and I saw Eddie there, uh, he came to my event. I threw him out of that too. Uh, I said straight up, I said, Eddie, did you know you brought the DEA or did you not know you brought the DEA that day? And he started crying. And uh, and I just said, get the fuck out of my face. And as blunt as it could be. And, you know, because look, he even got off. uh, He didn't even do his whole sentence. He got out early. Um, Then Brian Epis got off early, too. And they made him swear that he would never be an activist again. It was written up in the Sacramento Bee. Brian Epis was um, one of the first people like me that actually got busted in in 97 and, and went forward with his case. He went to a jury trial. He got a 10 year mandatory minimum. Um, it, he, that poor guy went through a hell ride. He did almost seven or eight years. I'd say six to seven years because they let him off a little early on his sentence. But Brian got the worst ride. And um, Eddie ended up doing time. But i don't have any respect for eddie Lapp, and you know a lot of people that knew what was going on before he got busted eddie was taking money from people for medicine that he was in the process of growing and he had raised probably a million dollars according to jack Herr. and there was no way he was going to grow all that pot back in the summer of 2004 and a lot of us felt like he was going big just so he'd have a reason to fail so because there was no way there was no way he was going to wow. come out of what he did and um He's not my favorite person. I don't think of him as a hero. Actually, as somebody who worked with Jack from 1994 onward after his stroke, a lot of people were really riding Jack's coattails for no reason. And I think Eddie was one of these people that was just hungry for the attention that Jack had. And he tried to put himself on Jack's level. And in my humble opinion, he had no reason or right to do so. And uh, yeah. I my my you know when he started crying at the THC expo we both knew the answer you yeah. know we both knew we knew and and i get it you know what i mean he's facing a lot of time and everything and i you guess he was scared but still yeah. it's not a not a you good know, look for me
0: it's 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 rough you know uh hearing this end this side of things uh most of the people i've spoken to about eddie all say you know he he was the pioneer and he saved me and he was wonderful and generous and kind and you know people people love him people you know really loved him uh, but obviously he you know he was no saint that's for sure
1: well i know that after he got busted there was there was lots of people that were bummed out that they because you know they lost his they they lit they believed him and they handed him money for potty hadn't grown yet and there was no getting it back and unfortunately that's to me it's like a ponzi scheme so i yeah. i I wasn't too impressed, you know, to be blunt. I mean, I, I love Jack a lot. He's like a dad to me. I'm still close to his kids. Um, but I think there's people taking advantage of him when he was in a weaker state. So yeah. It is what it is. Well, you let's know.
0: uh let's get off the topic of Eddie. I wanna get back to you because <laughs> we, we we no, no, it's fine. It's it's good <laughs> no. to hear, you know. Don't fine. shoot the messenger. And, no no we want to get to the truth about you know telling the stories of cannabis culture history is not just about you know you got to tell the good and the bad you got to tell the truth and the truth is the truth and that's what history is about in my opinion you know uh if you unless you want to do revisionist history which is not really you're absolutely right
1: and and at the time that eddie and let me just close at the time eddie showed up at my friend's head shop in january of uh oh five uh to talk to me i was on probation i was i had just been out of prison for less than a year i got out in may of 04 and uh the federal government in my opinion was trying to violate me and you know if i had listened if if i hadn't thrown him out of there that day the whole thing could have been a violation so you know it was just like uh you know so
0: Yeah, nobody's on. all good or all bad, you know. So he had there were the good things about him, I guess, and there were bad things about him. And and we can acknowledge both. So uh I want to get back to you and your story, but first I want to take a quick break. So we'll be right back with more with Todd McCormick here on Cast Stay tuned. All right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, once again, I'm your host, Bobby Black. We are here uh, this episode with legendary activist, cultivator, uh, author Todd McCormick. I want to get back to you and your story because we didn't really talk about your bust yet. You know, we talked a little about the aftermath of it, but you didn't really talk about, you know, what happened. How, you know, how did you get busted? How did your your mansion basically got busted, right?
1: Yeah, July of uh, 1997, Jack Harrow was selling cannabis to Scott Embler, who was running the uh, Los Angeles Cannabis Buyers Club, for lack of a better name. And um, Jack, being proud of me, couldn't stop talking about me and was running his mouth about me, Bel Air, Mansion, marijuana, hydroponic, thousands of plants. And they asked me if I would sell them clones, and I declined because 215 didn't allow for sales. And i thought what they were doing was kind of pushing it even though i'm sitting in a house growing thousands of plants i approached a lawyer and i asked him hey how do i stay legal and he said don't distribute cannabis if everything you're doing is within your own house there's no interstate commerce affected and it's only an in-state case but because of that they charged me with intent to distribute and they charged me federally but what ended up happening is when i declined the offer to sell clones to the west hollywood cannabis buyers club um, they turned me into the West Hollywood Narcotics Department. Uh, this detective Norsegog, and he was looking to become DEA. And he turned my case over to the DEA almost immediately after seeing I lived in a mansion in Bel Air on top of Stone Canyon. And they came in really quickly and raided me. They caught me with 4,116 plants and initially held me wow. on a million, million dollar bond. And uh, Woody was in Australia at the time. and. When he heard that I got busted, we were already friends. He had an emotional reaction, and he basically told his assistant to do whatever it took to get me out. And I was friends with Larry Flint at the time because I I was introduced to him by Woody, and we were negotiating to do a magazine because that's what I was trying to get money for and to try to get together. And Larry was we were negotiating how we were going to do it, and that's why Larry sent his attorneys down to uh, defend me and that's what ended up happening and you know the i think showing up with woody harrelson's bond money and larry flint's attorneys only ratcheted up the pressure against me by the feds because they realized you know oh shit, this is not going to be a pushover this is going to be a fight and then when i was released from prison we held a press conference in my driveway and the press was really favorable i um You know, I've always come from the heart and spoke from an honest place. And I think that they could see that. And it was easy to contact my mother. My doctors were available. My medical records were available. None of it was a lie. And the the press could see that. And they basically ran with it. And the story, as you remember, went all over the world practically. And I became, you know, went from being anonymous to a media celebrity, literally overnight yeah you know, not not yeah. that i enjoyed it but it was <laughs> what it was i mean yeah you know when you're on the news morning noon and night it's it, yeah so and what, we started uh, fighting how, the case
0: yeah what uh how long did you end up doing in prison and what was the time frame
1: um in in short they ended up indicting my publisher and you know, a bunch of other people around me with a second super indictment that they hit me with on literally woody's birthday the year later in 98. And um, I prepared for trial for over a year, and I ended up being denied a medical necessity defense by a federal judge, meaning I couldn't mention I had cancer 10 times. I couldn't mention what I was doing was legal. I couldn't bring in my lawyer to to, um, basically explain that advice of counsel. I tried to find out what the laws were, so I wouldn't break the law, and he wouldn't allow any of it. So the New York Times actually ran an entire page on me being denied a medical necessity defense um, it was like November 7th or something like that, uh, 1999. And I remember one of my friends when he saw that thought, shit, I had no idea how big of a deal your case really was until I, you know, cause when we went into war in Iraq, it was like a little paragraph. He mentioned, he goes, you get denied a defense and it takes up a whole page. He goes, <laughs> that was pretty impressive. But uh, then I was faced with going to prison. Um, they offered me three deals. One deal was, um go to trial which is going to cost me a quarter million dollars easy in lawyer fees and everything and I was going to lose with no defense and I was going to start serving a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence and then I would be able to appeal under the 10-year mandatory minimum law if you get uh convicted of going over a thousand plants you are not allowed bond on appeal so even though I'd been on this half a million dollar bond for almost three years they were going to take it back and say no you got to start serving your time um so the other two options were um grovel go to the judge and he can sentence you anywhere from uh zero to 60 months whatever he wants you can't appeal and um you know you can make all these claims of innocence or whatever to him and and it's up to him and i didn't like that i'm not one to grovel um and then the third option was we'll give you a five-year mandatory minimum if you will if you want to retain your right to repeal um but basically you know they're going to get you and we're going to go you're going to end up doing some time, so I accepted the five year sentence and I wanted to appeal, I wanted to continue fighting. I really thought that I would be able to win in an appellate court, I was wrong um, as was all of us. Uh, you know when it came to medical cannabis defenses in federal court, I was the first of many to be put through this and some people got much longer sentences than I did but on uh, january 3rd 2000 i had to self-surrender to prison and i did i showed up stoned in a suit and, <laughs> and went through it and um it's just incredible i mean we were really in a war on drugs they didn't call it a war for nothing and they really waged waged a war against culture and the people that were disrupting that or influencing that culture the most i think were targeted first and i'll take it as a compliment that they came after me as a squeaky yeah, wheel it's a
0: badge of honor man it's yeah. a
1: badge of honor right um, and i do know. too i do believe that actually yeah. i feel that way too and that's why i treated it like in a gentlemanly way i always showed up for court i always self-surrendered i never fucked around they never caught me slipping i always felt like it was like you just got to deal with it you know you make your bed you deal with it you know what i yeah. mean but ended up serving five years. Uh, They would not let me go through the regional drug abuse program because when I got to prison, the enlightened staff of the Bureau of Prisons told me that medical marijuana use is not a drug abuse problem. So they didn't think I really fit into the program, which I agreed with. But if that was the case, could you go back and tell the judge? Because I don't think I should be in prison either. Um, So if you complete the program, you get a a, a whole year off your sentence. And they wouldn't let me complete the program. So I ended up doing the maximum amount of time. And at a certain point when I was in prison, I realized it was futile to try to um, not smoke pot because there's pot in prison. And it was the only thing helping my neck. So I started smoking pot while I was in prison and I got multiple dirties. I went to the hole multiple times. I lost my phone for six months. I lost my visits for a year. Uh, They couldn't have been crueler really. I, I sat 30 days in the hole in solitary the first time <clears throat> ended up writing a piece for Paul Krasner's book published by high times psychedelic trips for the mind. The article I wrote was called topic of cancer and Paul Krasner liked it so much that he bumped Tim Leary, Ron Doss and Richard Metzler off of the introduction of the book and he and he, and he put me in and wow. basically uh, and dedicated the book to me instead of his three friends, which was un- mm-hmm. unbelievable and um i worked on
0: that book i did the graphic design for
1: it oh love you you know he didn't know what he was going to get when i sent him the article or the the piece i wrote and i talked about me meeting tim when tim first got cancer and talking to tim about his cancer and telling him how it was the most enlightening experience i had ever had uh paul had had two interviews one in august of 94 i'd met tim in september of 94 and then another interview with Tim in December of 94, where Tim had changed his whole mind and was gonna like throw his ashes up in his face and everything was different. And Tim and Paul Krasner had met me initially through High Times and met me again through my publisher, Peter. And you know, Paul Paul was like, it's cosmic. We're supposed to be friends. And um, I really, I loved and admired the man. He was a great guy, but when he saw my, what he what, what I wrote, he wrote me back and he said, Todd, I've had this puzzle of what happened to Tim and what changed him from you know wanting to fight cancer and to to accepting it. And he goes, and now I realize he met you and I want you to know that you made a huge impact on Tim's life. Wow. So if you look at the book, he put me in the Leary papers, uh, right between Rosemary Leary's uh, piece by, about her husband and then the interview he did with um, Tim in December of 94 called A uh, Game of Mind Tennis or something like that. And it was the optimistic Tim and he felt like the catalyst for that was me and Tim interacting when we met and me telling him about my cancer experience. Cause we got to spend some time together smoking ash and we like, That's we became amazing. buddies. Yeah, I was at Tim's last birthday party in October of 95 before I flew to Amsterdam uh, for the second couple. Was that guys. in New York? No, it was at his house in Beverly Hills. Oh,
0: okay. It was, I, I met Tim Leary one time uh, it was in New York. I believe it was at the Palladium Club. There was some kind of psychedelic party going on, and he was like a guest of honor. It
1: and was probably for his book called um, Chaos and Cyberculture. It had come out in the early 90s, and it would have been right around in, in, probably that time in New it York. It my, yeah, my
0: early days at high times, so somewhere in the yeah. late 90s, probably. Um, oh, late 90s. Oh, okay. The mid, 90s, mid, to late, mid to late 90s, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, he died in '95. So he he died in oh, well, actually had to be, he, yeah, he died had to be he died in winter of '96, um, and he was pretty frail when I saw him in October of '95. Uh, but it was beautiful. And then you know, crazy enough, Dr. John Lilly, the guy that invented the deprivation tank and put the tank at Tim's place.
0: Yeah,
1: I met him in '97, and he liked me so much. He gave me his deprivation tank when he moved to Maui. <laughs> wow, uh, and it's upstairs. I still have it to this very day. I've always
0: wanted to try that. I've never, never got an you, opportunity. I'm gonna to
1: set it. it up again. I have to buy a new bladder for it so it don't leak, wow. but uh, you can come use it. It's John's personal tank, it was the one in never his bedroom. Since
0: I saw altered states, I've always wanted That's
1: to. That's exactly try right. That's exactly the guy. <laughs> Not only do I have his tank, he gave me his shower shoes. I actually have the shoes he used to wear to walk from the tank to the shower. And I got to tell you, that's like the coolest thing. I don't know how long it'll take me to walk a mile in shower shoes from the tank to the shower, but I'm looking forward to it. But I've had some real luck. I mean, you know, the people I've met have been beautiful to me. You know, when I was in L.A., I, I, you know, through Woody, I met a lot of celebrities. One of them was Hugh Hefner. And when I met Hugh Hefner, he was very warmly embracing because I'd been in the news a lot and everybody felt like they knew me. And he wanted to tell me how he helped found normal in 1970 and was telling me about Keith and everything. And I said, you know, I know Keith, he's, he's been a friend of mine for many years. And he said, well, why don't I have you both over for dinner? So he actually flew Keith from Washington to LA, just so the three of us could have dinner at the Playboy mansion. And that's when I met and um. You Know now he's passed away, but it was pretty funny because and you ended when I, up pr-
0: and you ended up promoting a, a number of fundraiser parties at the Playboy <clears throat> Mansion,
1: right? Well, that would be years later. So, pre- yeah. previous to going to prison, is when I met Hef and I was going up to all the parties. Um, I was actually bringing him weed. I mean, it was hilarious because he, because I, I always have joints and stuff, and he was just like. Can I get some? And I was just like, "What are you gonna say, no to half?" So yeah. I was like, "Sure." I was like, "How do I get a hold of you?" He goes, "Just call the mansion." And I remember saying, "That works." And his answer was really cute. He goes, "It works for you." Yeah. <laughs> and I just died. And um, and we became buddies. He let me come up all the time in '98, '99. I spent my last my last New Year's, uh, 1999, at his house. I have a picture with Half that my girlfriend took, and um, it was. You know, I, I didn't even have the heart to tell him that I had to go to prison on Monday because I didn't want to ruin his night. And um, uh-huh. he, he wrote to me when I was in prison. He even drew me a little bunny with a joint in its mouth. <laughs> and he he said, awesome. either you're coming out or we're coming in. And it was really cute. I lost it because of the prison sucks. But oh. it, he was really sweet. Yeah. And um, when I got out of prison, I my life kind of went back to normal. I never cooperated. All my friends were still my friends. Uh, Bill Maher had a getting out of prison party for me. And um, I started. So, oh, wait. So you
0: didn't meet Bill Maher at the parties. You already knew him.
1: Oh, he's been, dude. He was my. Uh, so, all right, so now, okay. We, yeah,
0: how, Bill's did meet how did, how did you Bill? has been my best friend since 97. Woody and how did you meet Bill? I want to hear the story of
1: how you met him. Uh, okay. In short, I, I. Short. Yeah. Short version. <clears throat> the short version is one uh, of Jack's friend. owned a hemp company. Woody invested into a hemp company that made backpacks and stuff. Uh, his little brother was hanging out with this guy and he came over to my house when they called me up. He said, Hey, can I bring up, you know, Brett Harrelson, Woody's little brother. And I said, sure. And when Brett came up, Brett is still one of my best friends today. I was on the phone with him yesterday. Um, but he came up and I don't know, sometimes you just click with people and Brett just, just never, just never stopped coming over. I don't know another way to put it. Uh, you know, and, um, and then Woody's family came over and I met his wife and his kids. Uh, and then Woody came back from a movie and his family had been talking about me a lot and everything. So Woody just came over and we ended up hanging out and getting high. Just like spent the spent the weekend with me. Slept over my house that Friday night. And then Larry Flint came over that Saturday morning. And a bunch of Woody's friends came to my house. Because uh, he had so just was come in this around the town. time
0: he was working on the Larry Flint movie?
1: No, that was done. Yeah, the movie that Woody came back from was called Palmetto, Wasn't very oh, okay. big yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but when he came home uh instead of having like a little gathering at his house we had it at my house um because i had i had an elevator and wheelchair accessibility so it was easier for larry to come over to my house than it was woody's house woody's house is a little country and um so i i ended up meeting all these people in my living room as weird as it may sound and uh that's where i met larry flint in my living room and we hit it off and it was a good time and Then we were at a Blues Traveler concert one night and Woody and I were on the stage and that's where I met Bill. Um, Bill asked Woody if he'd be on Politically Incorrect and Woody quickly declined and then um, said, why don't you have somebody on that has something to say? And he pointed to me and Bill looked at me and said, oh, shit, come on. And then he said, well, if I have him on, will you come on? And Woody was like, "Uh." he said, sure. If you want to do it, Todd, I'll do it. And I said, sure. So Woody and I did Politically Incorrect on 420, literally April 20th, 1998, we wow. ta- we, we taped the show. And uh, it was and a good time. This is before
0: 420 was a big thing. I mean,
1: it was. It was happenstance. It was complete wow. happenstance that we taped wow. that day.
0: I, I, would, and, I would argue it was fate, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah.
1: I and, and I debated against, of all people, um, the girl from uh, Natalie Maines from Dixie Chicks, who went on oh, to wow. apologize to me later. When she saw me later, she's like, I always felt bad about arguing against you that day. And um, and Dr. Drew, who actually Dr. Drew and I, even though we debated each other, we kind of became buddies and he had me on Loveline. And then when I was in prison, he had my my lawyer and Andy Dick on Loveline talking about my case, which is really weird. They turned it into potline and, um, and and Dr. Drew was always cool. I mean, I think that I had something to do with kind of causing him to reevaluate the way he was looking at medical cannabis. And he was cool. And I was doing this thing called Spitfire in 98, 99, uh, where I was going to different colleges. Uh, Zach La Rocha of Rage Against the Machine had this idea of putting together actors and activists and musicians. And going to colleges and having to speak on different issues because then the kids would show up to listen to the celebrities and hear the activists so we had chris Novoselic of nirvana we had amy ray the indigo girls we had woody harrelson uh i was on tour with jello biafra um it was incredible um even more actually kenneth cole i ended up doing woodstock as stupid as that sounds to say in yeah. 1999 um i got to walk out on stage on the west stage the morning it opened at 11:35 a.m other than the sound check guy i got to walk out and say welcome to woodstock my name is todd mccormick i'm with spitfire tour and i got to talk to you about legalizing marijuana uh it was really quite incredible i did friday and saturday 23rd and 24th and um it was quite the experience That's the first awesome. date i did it with andy dick and uh and Uh, Andy, Dick, and Kennedy. Kennedy from MTV got booed off the stage. It was incredible. I had to improvise 18 minutes. Yeah, it was really incredible. The poor girl didn't even make it to the edge of the stage and she was saying something conservative and the whole audience started chanting, show your tits, show your tits. (laughs) And poor Kennedy just had a meltdown. And Andy Dick is screaming at me to go get the microphone and I'm, because I was the MC for our little gig and i was couldn't believe it and i went over to get the mic and everyone started cheering when she walked off stage and my manager is screaming at me go you got 18 more minutes dude 18 minutes in front of a hundred thousand people is a yeah. long yeah. time and i was just like oh my god but i went out there and i was like who wants 18 more minutes than me and everybody went off and uh and i was inspired so i just bitched about budweiser sponsoring woodstock for <laughs> And, then, and the culture war that was waged against the people that represented Woodstock. Because my attitude was, you know, in 1969, <clears throat> They were waging, you know, the war was uh, the the protests were against the war thousands of miles away, and now basically the war on drugs is against your culture. Alcohol's legal, prescription pills are legal, cigarettes are illegal, but your psychedelics, your LSD, your cannabis—that's what they're coming after, and you're their target. And and that was my message, and uh, it, yeah, and actually sure. they heard it pretty loud and clear. But um, yeah. but then six months later, yeah, I checked in a club fed, and um, yeah. but then when I got out, um. So
0: going America, back to the, to the, to the playboy playboys after I got out of un- prison un- for MPP. Right?
1: Yeah. So I was good friends with this guy, uh, that did the first party and it didn't go that well. And he approached me at the first party and said, listen, you know, you're a better person to be putting these on than me. Would you please take this over? Cause if we don't get it right, we're not going to be able to do it again. And I said, wow, you know, so I got uh, Joe Rogan to MC for me that first year. Blues Traveler played. Uh, We had him on top of the grotto, which was crazy. Um, And DJ Pooh, who made the movie Friday, he DJ for me. And um, and Bill Maher came and accepted an award for me. Um, It was 2007. It was like my first gig went great. Uh, We raised a bunch of money for MPP, which was the whole point. Uh, People think it was about the party, but it wasn't. Uh, As an activist, being able to call up celebrities and say hi, I'm putting on a party at the Playboy Mansion it kind of validates you because it's hard to get accepted at the playboy mansion and they vet really strongly for nonprofits. so they know you're you know legit and they'll listen to you and the whole point was because we don't have money we're trying to guilt these celebrities into kind of joining our team and that's what i was trying to do by organizing the party connect with celebrities try to get them to you know basically speak up and speak out and that was the whole gig and i ended up doing another one in 2008 perry farrell um uh played music for me he was also on spitfire tour with me um that's how i knew perry and then 2009 uh was the last year i did it <clears throat> and uh, MPP was nice they gave me a lifetime achievement award and i rented the la convention center two weeks later um well i'd rented it a year in advance but um my event at the at the LA Convention Center was called the THC Expo. And it was, I was trying to take the the message higher. I I felt like cannabis is a demographic that should not be uh, ignored. And I felt like the best way I could make that point is by renting the LA Convention Center and holding the world's largest uh, cannabis indoor expo in order to kind of get my point across and and i think it came over really well we had between 40 and fifty thousand people show up my opening day a funny little story i was friends with tommy chong going back to the 90s we're still buddies and uh i called him up i was stoned like i normally am and i called him up and i said hey tommy do you still have your electric heart rod and he said uh yeah and i said uh, can i borrow it and he got real quiet and, he <laughs> and then he says yeah I suppose you can. He said, where is it you're trying to go? I said, I'm not trying to go anywhere, Tommy. I rented the LA Convention Center and I want to put it on display because I'm doing this whole environmental hemp thing and you have this whole environmental side to you. You're not just this stoner. And I kind of wanted to highlight that. And he was just like, oh, wow, because he was Tommy was involved in the Playboy parties. Tommy was always cool with me. He he never came to my Playboy parties, but he would always came to the pre meetings because he wanted to be involved with getting more people involved. But it was torture for him to stand at a Playboy party and have people ask him for autographs for three hours. Yeah, so I bet. I bet. he was just so cool. Him he he's such a he's one of the nicest people in in Hollywood he I've is. ever met. Yeah, yeah I adore
0: him. A, yeah, one of the perks of of having worked at High Times for so long is getting to meet and and hang out with and know so many uh of the you know pot celebrities and stuff and uh i've I've had many experiences with tommy he's always been a sweetheart i've interviewed him a number of times on red carpets at the stonies and here always kind And uh, he's, he's, he's great, nothing but nice things to say about him. I got to yeah. say, man, I one of my big regrets is I never got to check go to one of those Playboy parties. Uh, one of those. You know, I invited
1: you. I invited I you over and, over and over and over. And you know I did. Yeah, you know I never I got did. to go. But at least,
0: look, I, I was- Can I, I tell was, you
1: why I thought it was? I thought high times wouldn't let you go because I was doing it for MPP and not normal. That might have been part of it. I, I don't know,
0: but- High uh, times
1: and normal, we're trying to kiss each other's ass because of the facade will and uh because yeah. yeah you and i we know the whole thing way too well and K- believe it or not keith got mad at me because i was organizing the mvp parties at the playboy mansion and he felt entitled that those should have been normal parties but not yeah. really the situation Well, you yeah. know At
0: least I got to And on the other On the other coast I was in New York Hanging out with their competitors The Penthouse Pets So <laughs> I got Oh, that's got right That's play- around the
1: same time That you did yeah, the first you, issue you had That had her on the cover
0: And I had the Penthouse Pets To hang out
1: with Well, so, I wasn't it, was, it wasn't a total I, I loss, didn't yeah. have any Playmates But, you know <laughs> The first party that MPP did They didn't think to invite Any women to the party And Playboy only includes Two Playboy Playmates oh, as, wow. gre- as greeters When you come in And all these guys Bought tickets to go to the playboy mansion in 2006 and when they got there it It was was like 600 guys (laughs) walking around looking at the animals in the cages and smoking you know and drinking it was it was i couldn't have laughed harder which is partly why i got the job so uh it was what it was but uh i didn't get paid i did it because it was the right thing to do and i was really this may sound funny but there's only so many celebrities in in los angeles and and once people alienate people they're alienated for life and i unfortunately uh had that experience i took rob campia who who founded mpp and later got kicked out of it out to dinner with uh joe rogan chris Novoselic, and um they couldn't stand him it, it was unbelievable and like as soon as he got out of the car I want to see dj poo was with me too they all started goofing on him and i was just like oh shit. and and i was just kind of taken aback because i realized if 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 this guy is gonna turn people off this much we're doomed because if he's over here and he's meeting these people and and they don't ever want to talk to him again it's never going to happen i mean they asked joe rogan to mc in 06 and. 06 you know, his response to me when I asked him to do it was, yeah, fuck yeah, I'll do it. He said, they asked me last year, but the guy that asked me was really sketchy. So I said, no. And I was just like, this is the problem. And so uh, really, it's like nuancing. The social scene is a, is a little bit of it and, you know. Yeah, well,
0: let's take another quick break, uh, but stick around, we'll be right back with more with uh, Todd McCormick here on Campus College. all right guys welcome back uh once again we are here with todd mccormick legendary uh cannabis activist author and cultivator so tell me tell me a little about some of the other projects you've been involved with in the decade since then
1: well uh, the very following year of the thc expo sadly jack Herrera passed away in 2010 uh which was devastating yeah. um but his publisher approached me and said hey you're it you you've got to put together uh, another edition And I collected memorials from some of his closest friends, Tommy Chong, Woody, Malcolm McKinnon, uh, Hager wrote for me, um, Elvie, Vivian McPeak, uh, a lot of them, Debbie Goldsberry, uh, Steve Bloom. Uh, They all wrote these memorials that are in the 12th edition of Jack's book. And we put together a pop-up book that has um, like literally a pop-up and we we put his book Grass, which was Jack's first book, and we put the documentary in it. Um, So we put that out. It's still available on Amazon. And then the following year was the the 20th anniversary of Seattle Hemp Fest. So I helped Vivian McPeak put together a book called Protestable, a 20-year retrospective Seattle Hemp Fest. And that went really well. Um, Going backwards a smidge, before I started doing the THC, excuse me, before I started doing the Playboy parties, I was approached to help with a documentary called The Union, The Business Behind Getting High which yeah. ended up going around the world and being hugely popular. It was the last interview with Dr. Todd McAurea. Um, Dr. Lester Grinspoon participated, Tommy Chong participated. I got Joe Rogan to participate. Um, it went really, really well for us. And then in 2010, we started the uh, Culture High and we ended up spending four years and a million dollars working on the documentary. And in 2012, I was in at barcelona receiving the cannabis culture award along with dr lester grinspoon and of all people sir richard branson and while i was with richard branson i asked him if he by chance had uh seen the documentary the union the business behind getting high and he smiled and said yes i thought it was brilliant so i used the opportunity and said would you consider being in our next documentary and he said maybe and then he said yes And then when we showed him the documentary in September of 2014, he liked it so much that he launched it for us on his own regard on virgin.com, which helped us get a lot of international press. And then Netflix ended up, um, they translated the movie into 15 languages and showed it in 70 countries for three years. Wow! And it was really an unapologetic advocacy film for legalization. It included Dr. Lester Grinspoon and Joe Rogan and some other doctors out of England. It was, it's a pretty, it did really well for us. And <clears throat> I was really proud of it. And then a few years later, um, well then unfortunately in 2020, I also got, I've been rated for growing pot three times since I got out of prison. Once in 2006, again in 2009, the day before my third Playboy party, believe it or not and then um, for having literally six plants in my backyard. And then again, in 2012, I got busted in um, this house, actually, this house I live now, uh, by the DEA because they were raiding my friend's school and they had information that I was hiding his money, which I wasn't. And they came in here with guns, you know, asking me where are the safes, where are the safes? I didn't have safes. And um, they ended up not arresting me, but because I wouldn't cooperate, they started prosecuting me, uh, and they prosecuted me 2013, 14, 15, 16, and into 2017. Damn. Yeah, I wouldn't cooperate, and Tony Serra was my attorney, if you know who Tony is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tony's an old legend. They made the movie uh, True Believer about him in the 80s, starred Robert Darney Jr. and stuff. It, so Tony's a great guy, but he won't, co- he won't be your attorney if you cooperate yeah. flat out. He's in his 80s now, and he practices law mm-hmm. because he wants to. So Tony and I had been friends since 94. And uh, I have a lot of love and respect for him. And I think it's mutual. So he agreed to be my attorney and we fought them for five years. And I prepared for trial three times. And they, they backed down three times. And even though I had three felonies, I was facing a fourth, I was still not going to take a deal. And Tony loved that and then after the passage of prop 64 all felony cultivation charges in california were reduced to misdemeanors so all of the cases that were being prosecuted for felony cultivation had to get stopped and restarted as misdemeanors and most of them got dismissed because there was there wouldn't be grounds to even make the raid now because now that cannabis is legal to grow it's not you would have to come up with Uh, dealing or money laundering or guns, or you'd have to come up with an actual crime, just growing cannabis isn't a crime anymore. So it changed the whole conversation. And the case got dismissed in um, the winter of 2017. And I'll say, honestly, I kind of regretted it, because I enjoyed going to court with Tony every other month, (laughs) because I got to spend time with my hero. And I just thought the world of him, he's a brilliant, brilliant person. And I just, he's one of the true authentic people in this industry or this, he, he, the joke in the first movie in the eighties was that he charged for murder cases, but the pot cases he handled for free. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he felt like it was a social injustice. And yeah. so he's a really good person. And, um, and then the 2018 hemp farm bill passed and all parts of the plant that contained less than three-tenths of a percent THC were removed from the controlled substances act. And i realized that inadvertently seeds became legal because they contain zero cannabinoids so in 2018 i started working on what became authentic genetics and i launched in um, the winter of 2019 my seed company authentic genetics and it's been great i'm the only person that mel frank has allowed to sell his seeds for and he's 77 years old now and to think that i was once a little 13 year old kid reading his book and being inspired and now i'm one of his best friends and i'm the only person in the world he lets sell his genetics it's quite an honor
0: yeah it's it's a trip isn't it when you when you get to meet and and become friends with your your idols and and icons uh you know i have to say that uh working at high times one of the best things about it that i didn't even appreciate necessarily at the time until a little later was when when hager started the counterculture hall of fame he began inviting all of his idols to come and accept awards and that way he got to meet them and and become friends with them and i got to meet them by pro you know at the events and stuff so now it's great that i can look back and say you know I too met this person, that person. I, yeah. I was friends with Jack. I was friends with Lester. I was friends with, you know, all Steve and Ida Mae. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Steve yeah. and Ida
1: Mae. Yep. Alex and Allison. Uh, Alex and Greg. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It was so incredible. Uh, through them, I met the the Travis from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who who, who is a friend now. And so it's. It's, it's amazing when you get to and also on on the music side of things too as as a as a writer for high times as you probably know one of my my main beat was entertainment i'd interviewed a lot of bands and uh did a lot of like event coverage and stuff and got to meet and smoke out with all my favorite musical artists all the metal bands and rock bands that i i grew up loving and stuff so it, it's a trip when you get to meet and smoke with and become friends with your idols for sure what's next for you any new projects you want to talk about real quick
1: real quick sure um i am now working with bill drake who is the author of the very first cultivators handbook of marijuana came out in 1970 before mel frank and anybody he's now 80 years old and he's working for me full time and we are working on um putting up information i'm i'm actually kind of paying him to write a complete online cannabis cultivation book for that we are giving away because he wrote the first like cannabis cultivation book so uh now we're doing it chapter by chapter by chapter and then we're going to organize it and and it's all up on the website as we go and i have a new book coming out called from cancer to cannabis which is um an in-depth guide of the endocannabinoid system robert clark is one of my contributors with a really like a 17,000 word article or contribution called Fragrant Medicine about terpenes. And we're explaining the, the endocannabinoid system and how people can uh, make their own oil by basically soaking uh, cannabis flowers in a in a mason jar with hemp seed oil and then uh, just filtering it away. And what happens is the hemp seed oil breaks down the trichromes and it traps the cannabinoids and terpenes in the oil. And you can have non-decarboxylated phytocannabinoid enriched hemp seed oil that you can take every day from your own garden. And that's what I'm really trying to emphasize people can do for their health because that really you can take in a lot more phytocannabinoids if you don't decarboxylate them, which means heat them up because once you heat them up and they become active, you get really high. But uh, if you don't heat them up, you can actually consume them in really high doses. And, you know, just like other medicines, the higher the dose makes a bigger difference. And if you can consume phytocannabinoids like THC and CBD and others, in really high doses you can actually help with um inflammation and a whole host of things because it keeps your uh, your whole body your endocannabinoid system in balance yeah. and so that's something that i'm i'm really passionate about and i'm enjoying doing because as a cancer patient so many people have approached me about what they can do and what i do to stay healthy and it's a you know so it's all going into this book you know and it talks about essential fatty acids um, and how our body turns them into endocannabinoids on demand. And I think you're gonna like it. I'll send you a copy as soon as it's done. It should be coming out by summer.
0: Cool, awesome, I look forward to that. Well, I'm I'm super thankful that there's someone like you. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other people as well, but someone like you with your integrity out there, calling it like you see it, preserving the genetics, being being the real deal, you know, being the real deal out there, It's it's great. And this is all incredibly fascinating stuff. And um,
1: yeah, I think you're in a great position, Bobby, to really tell the history and you're you, you live the history, you're right there for it. So to me, you're the perfect person to be doing what you do. And I wish you the most success with well, this.
0: Well, thank you, man. I appreciate yeah. that. And uh, I appreciate your, your wisdom and your, and your uh, knowledge uh, and, and being able to educate and uh, tell people these stories. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Really appreciate your time. And like I said, and your, and your knowledge, your expertise. And uh, good luck with everything. And I'll I'll, I'm, I'll see you at the next event, probably.
1: For sure, Bobby. <laughs> Stay in touch. Thanks again, man. All right.
0: All right. And that's going to wrap it up for another episode of Canthropology. For more information on the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website, worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to hit us up on social media, you can do that. Or you can shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click the subscribe button. Leave us some feedback, some reviews, share it with your friends. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Also, a quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and of course, Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.